Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey everyone, it's Tom Quee here of So Recordings, bringing you the second episode of Live Fast, Die Ugly, The 100 Reasons Podcast. And I just want to start by saying a huge thanks to everyone that's been listening to the show. The reception to the first episode has been nothing short of extraordinary, really. I mean, we've been right near the top of the charts for the Great Britain iTunes podcast rankings, and actually top of the charts for the music interview rankings in Great Britain, which is just wild. Uh, We've also been breaking into the top 10 in places like Poland, Ireland, Singapore, Japan, It's insane, quite frankly, and testament, really, to all the guests that we had on the first episode and the great interviews that they gave. So, yeah, cheers again to all listening. You know, be sure to tell a friend about the show and support the band themselves as well, you know, on all their platforms. Put all the links down below and make sure you head to 100reasons.com and pre-order the upcoming Glorious Sunset album. There's a whole host of great packages over there ahead of the 24th of February 2023 release date. And of course, you can also go see the boys, too, on their upcoming tour in 2023. They're playing Leeds on the 23rd of February, Glasgow the 24th and Manchester the 25th next year before another trio of gigs the following week, that being the second of March in Bristol, the 3rd of March in Birmingham, and finally, the band are at London's mighty Brixton Academy on Saturday the 4th of March. So anyway, where were we? Well, this is the one you've all been waiting for. Get ready for 90 minutes plus of all ideas above our station chat. We're talking the recording in New York, the release, the fame, the festivals, Top of the Pops, Gonzo, rock stars being arseholes and rock stars being nice, trying to crack America, and so much more. But before we get to that part, we first have to step back for a second and introduce a new voice to the story, the band's great drummer, Andy Buse. Andy, I want to start with, like, how did it start with you and the drums? Like, were you a typical kid on pots and pans? Were you inspired by someone else that you saw early on? Like, how did that come about? I think I was exposed to music at an early age. The household I grew up in was very much a music household. Just everything, my mum's record collection was quite big, and I have two older sisters who had a lot of music blaring from their bedrooms and I I just sort of found myself getting interested in not specifically drums at first but 
Uh, I think guitar was the first thing I picked up. We had instruments around the house. I think my first concert I went to, my older sister Angie took me to see Guns N' Roses at Wembley Stadium. Oh my God. I think Colin might have been there as well. You know what? I think he was there, yeah, but yeah. we didn't know each other at the time. <laughs> I think I was probably too young to be at a concert. I think I was, yeah. only, about, I was only about 12, 12 or 13. But that experience had a profound effect on me. I remember walking in there, I still remember it really well, walking into the stadium and just thinking, this is incredible, you know, that, that many people just all facing a stage and, you know, Soundgarden came on stage Ugh. and I just remember that just being massively awesome. Yeah. And then Faith No More, <laughs> again, Ugh. you know, and then Guns N' Roses. So the whole <laughs> experience was just huge for me. I think, I just remember thinking that drums were just quite an interesting instrument. You know, it wasn't something that I was... I was really aware of until I, I started seeing live concerts, you know, and then I kind of really started paying attention to drums. And yeah, I, I mean, I was like a young, I didn't have a drum kit in the house, obviously. So I, I did, I used to play on pillows with, yeah. with like wherever I could like chopsticks or something, wherever I could find. And then, yeah, I did end up having the old drum drum set in the house. And then I think I, I sort of discovered Nirvana and Pearl Jam and bands like that. And that really became my thing. And I remember just putting on a set of headphones and just listening to Nirvana Nevermind and playing along how I thought the drums were were being played, you know, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And so I just basically copied everything that Dave Grohl did, I think. And I, I, I remember thinking that I'd nailed Come As You Are. That was the first song I could actually play on the drums pretty well. And I remember being very proud of that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was it for me, really. I, I think I just kind of fed into it. And then... Drums just always really fascinated me um, after that. I just kind of really got quite into them. You mentioned Nirvana and, and, and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and, you mm. know, all these kind of heavy bands. And obviously, A Hundred Reasons, sonically, are a ferocious outfit. You know, you've got Colin roaring up front. You've got Larry and Paul, like some dueling buzzsaws. Like, yeah. were you into any other, like, heavier music than that? Because, like, obviously, you know... Soundgarden can be pretty punishing, but I know yeah. a lot of the guys have mentioned like at the drive-in of being really important and yeah. bands like that. Right? I guess I've, I've been one of those people, I think, because like I said, because of my sort of early exposure to music, I've, I've always liked all music across the board. Hmm. Um, anything from kind of like Simon and Garfunkel all the way through to kind of like Deftones and um, Sepultura and things like that and everything in between. And so it wasn't necessarily that I was kind of, aiming to be in a band that were really really heavy I, I i like music that has has melody in it and has you know emotion and just and power i mean i was also into kind of blur and oasis and all of that stuff as well so yeah it's it's when I, when i started well we were in floor together first and floor were actually a lot a lot more heavy than than 100 reasons were mm-hmm. it was kind of when larry joined and we became 100 reasons that we started kind of mellowing out a little bit <laughs> <laughs> into kind of more melodic music yeah i don't know i don't i don't know if we were kind of aiming to be um a really heavy band or whether we just kind of we just kind of became <laughs> <laughs> what, what are your memories of the band becoming then like you mentioned larry joining and you know we've obviously covered this in the previous episode but yeah. how, how do you remember it sort of forming and, and becoming 100 reasons like between you guys god this i mean it's going back so far now I mean, <laughs> yeah 20 my my memories of it were quite hazy, but yeah. we were. I, I joined Floor. I was in another band before Floor. Mm. We were all in our local area together. Uh, we had a really healthy music scene, actually, and uh, we all knew each other. 
and I for the last year of floor I, I I joined that band and if memory serves me correctly that band kind of we were sort of fizzling out I remember the thing that struck me with floor was that they were actually a bunch of guys who were really taking it seriously and that really interested me because I knew that I wanted to be in a band that was serious and they were kind of the guys that were doing it you know they really really were serious it kind of got to a point where we wanted to step up to the next level and <laughs> for some reason or other like floor just wasn't kind of working it wasn't going anywhere really and Larry was in a band called Jetpack and that band similar vibe really they were sort of a little bit ahead of us with regards they'd released an EP and they you know they were kind of a little bit ahead of us with touring and mm. things like that but that band had also kind of fizzled out around the same time and yeah we were managed by the same management um we all knew each other like I said so we already knew Larry and I think it was suggested that Larry was looking for a band and we were looking for a, a guitar player and yeah we kind of just got together and started rehearsing and it immediately it immediately clicked with all of us it was it was one of those things and you, you hear this a lot from bands I think that when those five personalities get in a room together for some reason it all just clicks you know and you find it easy to just write songs we were prolific writers we would just write so many songs and I think the first song we ever wrote if memory serves me correctly was a song called Slow Learner which became one of the songs on EP1 yeah. I think it was Cerebra, Slow Learner and and Clear and I think that was yeah I think that was the first song we ever wrote together and as soon as that if, if you know that song there's a bit at the end of it where there's no singing or anything, it kind of goes into this breakdown. Mm. And I remember thinking that, that the sound that, that the end of that song was just so powerful. And at the time I was thinking, God, this is really good. You know, I think we've, we've kind of got something here. And then it, it kind of, we just, as you do, when you get together with a group of people, you kind of learn each other's, the way each other write music. And it was always all five of us who wrote the songs, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, we kind of just grew from there, really. It was it was a really good start and yeah. it kind of blossomed really and now let's get to colin who recounts his memories of recording the debut in new york across august and september of 2001 so ideas above our station then was recorded in new york at the magic shop studio correct um, tell me about that place does it come in much history or I believe so. I mean, we actually did it over two places. We did it at um, Magic Shop and then we did it at Mission Sound, which is in Brooklyn. Mm. Um, it's across the river. But Magic Shop had like Fun Love and Criminals, Cheryl Crow. Right. I think the main thing was um, David Bowie mm. has recorded there. And it was brilliant. It's just like behind a door. You wouldn't know it's there, which is one of the coolest things about New York is like there's these things behind doors that you have no idea. <laughs> And when we were in New York, we started hanging out with people from like Taking Back Sunday um, and stuff like that. Um, I didn't go, but everybody sort of went to Six Flags with Taking Back Sunday and stuff like oh, that. Oh, cool. Okay. Spending all my money on video games that yeah. were imports at the time. So <laughs> hanging out with people like um, Sammy Siegler and stuff, you know, who's like amazing drummers, like that, you know, going out with him and, and things like that. So yeah, it was an odd time. But yeah, Magic Shop was just amazing. It's just kind of like a good live room. It was all about Dave Sardi and the Neve desk, you know, this analog desk from the 60s, which is just incredible. 
you know, I think it's something when I sit there and listen to the records that I've made that have been on those desks, they're, they're quite sort of timeless. So they don't sort of age. Um, and again, you can sort of go back to new metal records and stuff like that. A lot of them really show their age in terms of just because their production is of the time mm. rather than just trying to go, well, this is, let's just make something sound great. That's where sort of Dave sort of came in. So for that, you know, being at Magic Shop, seeing all the discs on the wall and stuff and everything. And then Juan, who was like the, the studio intern, I think, was just incredible. He was like totally straight edge, but completely and utterly happy to get everyone around him absolutely hammered. <laughs> um, but he was great. You know, hung out with bands like Aerotype 11, who came on tour with us and stuff like that. So there was loads of these kind of cool moments that were sort of around the recording sessions. Um, but Magic Shop was amazing. Yeah, it's not like a super glitzy metropolis type studios of no. big rooms and all that. It's really homely, really casual. You feel really relaxed when you're there and everything you make in that room sounds incredible. Now, you were recording it during September 2001. Yes, it was August, really. August. It was like a, well, what we did was we did, I think we did two weeks of tracking. We did, I think we did like a week of pre-production. And Larry might be able to correct me or anyone else so they can feel free. And then we did about two weeks of tracking. And then we literally flew back to the UK to do Reading and Leeds Festival. Okay, yep. And then I think Andy Buse and Andy Gilmore had laid down the drums and bass. So they didn't come back. But myself, Larry and Paul flew back to New York. So you literally came in on like the Friday morning. Uh, it was the night before, I think, on the Thursday, played Leeds, finished up at Reading, I think, on the Sunday, and then flew straight back to New York, like literally, I think, that night or something, I can't remember. Um, and then that's when we sort of did the stuff at Mission Sound. So we did Magic Shop for a couple of weeks, and then we did Mission Sound. But yeah, we were. You were? So, yeah, so we were supposed to fly back on the 12th of September, mm. and we'd done all the tracking. Don't think we were staying. I wasn't staying for the mixing. And we we're all sort of supposed to go back on the 12th, literally. And the funny, I wouldn't say the funny thing is, no, it but... was a huge tragedy, but I, I literally remember sitting on the roof and we were all hanging out thinking, our, our work here is done. <laughs> yeah. um, and there's a huge sort of lightning storm, which is like on the, the night, you know, before it all happened. And don't worry, I'm not religious. I don't get into any of that no. kind of thing. But, you know, when you sit there and go, well, that happened, that, you know, it was just a little bit odd. And it literally, I mean, I was getting up in the morning, right? Because I was going to the studio anyway. I just thought, well, I've got one more day in New York. There's not much else to do. I know Dave's going to be at the studio. We'll be doing some pumping and getting some sort of modern mixes ready or whatever for, for mixing. I'll just go to the studio. So I headed up the road. And we were saying, staying at, um, I think it was called Off Soho Suites. And it's just off the Bowery, which is near CBGBs and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I just thought, you know, Paul was there. Um, I'm just going to, you know, hang out um, and stay here. I'm not going to the studio. I'm just going to chill out and watch some TV. Larry was with a friend of his up in Queens, actually, completely out of the way, hanging out with a mate. And I was like, well, I'm just going to go to the studio. So I left. And I thought, oh, there's a smoke cloud over there. It's not, it's not great. But you didn't, I didn't know what it was, yeah. right? Because I didn't watch the news. Um, so I walked up to the subway, and I think it was on Spring Street. Oh, that was closed. 
okay, I'll walk to Union Square then, because that's where you kind of, you get the subway to Union Square, then change to go to Brooklyn or whatever. So I went there, and that was close. And then, like, I saw the smoke, but I hadn't seen anything. So I still didn't really know what was going on. Um, I thought, okay, well, I'll just, I guess, guess there's no subway at the moment. I'll head back to, um, you know, where we're staying. So I did, walked back, about 15, 20 minutes. And I got through the door and I said, all right, Paul. And Paul was crying. Wow. All right. And, you know, absolutely fair enough. Um, mm. And then I saw what had happened because Paul was watching the TV and I saw what was going on. fucking out. You know, got to go and phone my mum and stuff and tell people I'm okay or whatever. But the one thing I felt was this, I can't be in the city. I've got to get out of the city right now. So there's no subway. So I was going to the studio anyway. I just started walking to the studio. And I, I say this to people, right? So if anyone's ever seen the film Cloverfield, yes, there's a bit in it when everyone's on the bridge and they're all just getting the hell out of the city. Right. It was like that. And I'll go back even further because I do like films and stuff. There's an old school film called Bridge of Remagen, which had Robert Vaughan in it. It's old school World War II movie. And again, thousands of people just crossing a bridge to get out of the city. So I was in amongst that. No one was pushing and shoving. No one was doing, you know, anything like that. Everyone was just, we don't need to be here. We're not going to be here. Yeah. And then I sort of ended up at the studio. Um and then just sort of hung out. Greg turned up. Dave turned up. Um, Paul was staying in the apartment. I think it was maybe two in the afternoon when I finally managed to get in touch with somebody in my family because obviously everyone's trying to ring through. Didn't have mobile phones, didn't have texts, not much internet back then. So trying to reach people, tell them you're okay. Um, sort of did that. And um, Dave was like, come and stay at mine tonight. Greg did the same, you know, we all stayed over, just had a, Dave lived in Brooklyn, so we kind of didn't really do much work anyway, because we weren't going to, um, and we just kind of found a bar, had a few drinks, I do remember sitting out on Dave's porch, because it was really nice, and just smoking cigars, um, and then sort of spent the night at Dave's, and then our management, and everybody was sort of trying to get us back home, so... We stayed out there, I think, like sort of an extra week, I think it was. So mixing started because, you know, without sounding too mercenary, but, you know, things still still go on. But yeah. I think um, I think amount of time, actually, I, I don't always believe in humanity because I think, you know, when you look at some of the things that go on in the world now, you think, how the hell can one human being do that to another human being? It's pretty screwed up. But in New York at that time, everybody had everybody's back and everyone was sort of going through it together again go back to those kind of movies where you see it all the time you know there's a photo of somebody have you seen this person or whatever that was what was all over the subway stations all around union square photos of people have you seen this person have you seen this person missing missing and it was it's quite crazy really when you think about it but everybody sort of came together in a city that is not renowned for everybody getting together but everybody was just kind to each other at least for a while and then 
stay for a bit of the mix because we weren't doing anything else and then managed to get a flight home and and that's what we did my name damn that's that's so intense it was intense and we had to because of where we were staying had to i mean literally you had to have a mask because of all the dust so once the dust was coming down you had to have a mask to get and you had to show your passport to say you and prove you were staying where you were staying so you could get back there so i had to do that yeah i mean it was horrible well let's push forward about six seven months to the 20th of may 2002 when the record is released Mm -hmm. and you know unequivocally it was a huge success i mean it peaked at number six in the uk album charts sales of over 118,000 copies several top 40 hits seventh on the scottish album chart and it is a it is a bit of a low-key classic as well of a record. Like it's just a it sounds fantastic. It's so fun to listen to. Like, you know, it's aged amazingly well. Like I don't, I guess this is by way of saying you must be very proud of it. Like, you know, it's an incredible debut. I don't see how you can't not be proud of it. Yeah. You know, we we worked really hard on it. Everybody that was involved at the time worked really hard. Um and I think that sort of success at the time was just a culmination of everyone's hard work. And, you know, how can you, it's quite strange taking to and say, how can you not be proud? You know, you're in a privileged position where you mm. get to have a go at doing something that you genuinely love doing and you get to do it. And yeah, I think for us, when, you know, we're not the type of people that would, I don't know, it just makes you a bit of an ingrate really, doesn't it? Just go, oh, well, you know, you can't, you can't ignore that part of your life because it was so important and it was amazing. It was a fantastic time. You had a great record. Everyone's talking about it. People are coming to see you play live, playing shows, doing great sets at festivals and stuff and everything. It was brilliant. So yeah, you can't not be proud. And it does sound good. You can't look back on stuff and regret it either because what's the point of that? It doesn't change anything. It still happened. I think, you know, there's certain songs that you can sometimes turn around and go, well, do you know what? You know, maybe it could be better or something like that. But for me, that's what makes it art. You know, and the whole point is, is if you are an artist, which is kind of what people call you, um, the music that you make and the records that you make, they don't have to be perfect. You just have to accept them for what they are. And if you can accept them for what they are and love them, then that's that's even better. So, yeah, I can't, yeah, I've got no regrets. One of the things that really stands out to me listening to the debut is that, like, I don't know, there's a singular vision in your music, I feel, but there's like a real diversity within that. Like consider, I don't know, like the kind of the battering buoyancy of something like I'll Find You into more of just the full-on brutality of Gone Too Far or What Fort Did. It's it's always like very hundred reasons-y, you know, it's always angular, it's always attacking. But it, it never feels samey. Like, you know, we touched on new metal a lot in this conversation, but a lot of that can just be so repetitive and it can give you a headache, like Larry said. But I feel like there's such breadth of expression underneath the umbrella of what 100 Reasons is, like especially on this record, the debut. Well, I think that's why you just, just write songs that you like. Mm. <laughs> you know? And that's what it comes down to. I think um, we used to call what Thought did, what Larry did, um, right. because there's a guitar bit in it where it's... I say it's kind of palm muted guitar bit later on in the song, and I think we wanted it opened out, but he played it palm muted and kind of. Um, in fairness, I don't care if that makes sense. We used to call it, we used to call yeah. it what Larry did, which is quite funny. You know, you just again, it goes back to what we sort of started talking about at the beginning. Just write what you want to write, and don't care what anyone else thinks. You know, just 
if you can walk away from it and go, really like those songs, because you're the one that's going to be playing it every night. You know, someone else gets to move on to the next track if they want to. But if you, you know, if you don't like the songs that you're writing, then good luck having a great career. You know, just write what you want to write. Don't worry about the genre. Like I said, we were all into rock, so we're going to write rock music. <laughs> all right? That's yeah. just what's going to happen. But don't worry about whether it ticks a box for someone. Make sure it ticks the box for you. Make sure that you're looking forward to that next part of the track. And when it kicks in, you're going to be excited. You know, that's what it is. So, yeah, we didn't overanalyze stuff. You know, you can analyze stuff, I think, from a production perspective and from an arrangement perspective, just to make sure that everything flows well and, and that kind of... And again, you analyze the lyrics and stuff, but it's it's not like a, a super micro analysis or whatever. We're not a prog band. No. You know, we're a rock band. And yeah. just and, and rocks, to me, is it's built around feeling, you know, and if that song makes you feel a certain way, happy days. And now let's hear from Larry with his thoughts on the album. I want to get to the debut, which is, yeah. you know, obviously incredibly celebrated. I mean, regarded as kind of a watershed classic, uh, you know, peaked at number six in the UK album chart, sales of over 118,000 copies, spawned several top 40 hits, has the Lloyds building as an album cover. You know, it's got so much going for it. But you, you've made a lot of records as well, which you just touched upon and which I want to get onto later in, in, in the chat. But... I mean, how do you feel looking back on this? I mean, you, you can't help but be proud, right, to have played guitar on this album. I'm incredibly proud of it. And I'm glad that I am proud of it as well, because it, mm. would, there is, it would be easy to not be, you know, because I'm proud of that moment. I'm proud of how instinctive it was and how we just made, how this record just fell out of us. And it sounds like this record just fell out of us and, and lots of people connected with it. It's a really lovely feeling. Um and I'm glad that I can hold it in that place in my head and in my heart because, you know, we, we were a band that didn't match that peak again. You know, it was that was it. And then it was a step, basically a sort of steady decline until we stopped doing it full time. Yeah. And I think it would be quite easy to look back at that and sort of with with bitterness or with like, oh, well, you know, if we'd have done this, maybe we'd have been the biggest band in the world or whatever, you know, all that sort of mm. nonsense. And I probably was in that place for a little while straight after the band ended. But, you know, give it a bit of distance and a bit of age. I can really look back on that now and think, oh, no, we did we we did a thing and it was great. And I'm not even sure how we did it, but we did. It was just a sort of magical time where uh, where things were created that were great. Um, and it was a, a wonderful thing to be proud of and something that set up the rest of my life even if it wasn't in the way that I thought it was going to at the time it was happening, if that makes sense. Yeah, but it really yeah. is a sort of a, mo a formative moment and a formative few years that, that really did set me on the, the path for everything that's happened since then. And yeah, I'm just immensely proud to have been part of it. Well, I mean, you know, it's a testament to its popularity is that you guys would then reconvene, you know, in its 10 year anniversary and just celebrate yeah. the album once more and, yeah, I mean, it's a magnificent piece of work. Like, any particular song that stands out? I mean, I know it's like picking your favourite grandchild or something, but, like, yeah. is, there, is there, like, one or two that you're, like, really happy with a riff or... Because, I mean, sonically, it can't be faulted. Dave Strider did an incredible job, but, I mean, compositionally, like... Ooh. I, you know what, right? <laughs> it's not even one of the big hitters on the record. There's a song called What Thought Did. Yes. Um, what Larry Did, right? It's known as Larry What Larry Did. did. Yeah, yeah, you've heard that. Okay. I have. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Because 
everyone else hated the fact that I muted that bit in the middle. But I love that song and I really like my guitar playing on it. So they can all go fuck themselves because I was right. <laughs> yeah, that is. I, I adore that track as well. I like the scary way it starts. I like just the explosive. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, I love know. how I love how it, ba- it barely holds itself together. Yeah, like, yeah. If I could play guitar like that all the time, I'd be happy. <laughs> That's one of the ones where I'm terrified of playing that on the tours now because I'm like, I just, I'm not sure my fingers can do that anymore. <laughs> but we'll have to find out. <laughs> and you know, you say about playing on the tour, so. 2002, post the release of the record, was just, I can't, you know, it's unbelievable that you played Ozfest, Isle of Wight, uh, Province Rock, Glastonbury, all of those sort of stages. Do you remember the fact that you, um, I mean, you guys were so big that you kept a journal for the BBC, a tour diary on their website? I did do that. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, you know, I mean, I love you guys and I mean this respectfully, but it's like, what the hell? It's like, that just doesn't happen anymore. Like, Yeah, yeah, I, that's one of those things... I remember doing that and I remember, you know, a management being like, or someone, whoever it was, just be like, do you want to do this? And I was like, yeah, sure. I'll just do that. So I was just write, I was writing these few paragraphs every, mm. however, you know, once a week or whatever it was and just sending them off and they were ending up on the BBC website. And like, I didn't even like, I didn't even think about it. So I was just asking you to know, write a journal. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's one of those things where I thought about it later on. I was like, actually, that was pretty sick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a godsend to me doing the podcast. I was like, bloody hell, what this oh, is really? like Yeah, well it's was just it? like, you know And then I got drunk and then got a bed. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. It's a primary source, so you know, I can't yeah. can't turn it down. Another thing I want to ask about this era, seventeenth of May two thousand and two. You guys played Top of the Pops, like just yeah. Tell me about this. Richard Blackwood presented, which is the most 2002 thing ever. Like, it's unbelievable. We played it twice, actually. Oh, you did? And I guess oh, you played twice. We did. We played it for If I Could, and we played it for Silver. Mm. And I don't know which one that was. If it was the first time we did it, my friend Omar, who's still a very good friend of mine, who is now a tour manager, he, at the time, was a camera assistant for Children's BBC. So he was working at TV Centre. So when I went down there, me and him, he was like showing me around. And me and him actually smoked a spliff in the Blue Pier Garden, which <laughs> is nice. Before before <laughs> sound check, which is my favourite, which is probably the best thing that happened that day. <laughs> we decided to try to insist on playing it live because we thought we were fucking Nirvana or something. Mm. So they were like, mime, mime. We're like, no, we're not going to mime. So play it live. And we did. Uh, which is probably a mistake because it didn't sound very good. And they're not really set. It's not like playing Jules Holland where everything's no, set up no, it's to not, capture yeah. a good live performance. Like they're literally just there for the camera rehearsals. So I remember that being really stressful. Uh, like uh, those Top of Pops performances, I remember us in the band treating them as something that we had to do, something that we were like, okay, well, we'll do this. And then well, at least it's funny. We can just tell people afterwards that we did Top of the Pops. But like we were not into it. And it was like, it was not our thing to be doing that. So, you know, we definitely felt like the sort of black sheep in there. And in a way, we're only doing it because we were told to, I'd say. The second time we did it, I remember it was in the middle of a tour. And we played Truro in Cornwall, in the hall for Cornwall. And we played there and we had this weekend plan because we had a day or two off afterwards. And like, right, we're going to stay down in Cornwall. We're going to go surfing. It's going to be brilliant. But instead, we drove back 
to London and to record Top of the Pops instead of going surfing it. None of us wanted to be there the second time we did it. We were like, fuck uh. this. This is shit. <laughs> no, no one that likes our band watches this anyway. What's the fucking point? <laughs> so I think that was the attitude about doing Top of the Pops. But that's obviously turned into something that like I tell people all the time now and I definitely dine out on it. So, yeah, you know, no, that is, I mean, that's the reason I Swings ask. and roundabouts. <laughs> serious, serious anecdote. You know, I'd wager you're one of the heaviest bands that's ever played Top of the Pops as well. You mentioned you mentioned Nirvana before and stuff like that. But like, but yeah, that yeah. was a kind of kind of wild time, really. That's and... the thing you say, like, you know, when, when I was a bit younger and you're like hanging out with those relatives and people are like, oh, you're in a band and they haven't heard of you and you're trying to validate yourself. You just say you played yeah. Top of the Pops. People are like, oh, OK, well, you must be serious then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Grandpa <laughs> suddenly like pipes down, like yeah. he gets it. He yeah, gets oh, it. I've heard. I've heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 2002 continues then. Wild year for you. Uh, you actually win Best Album at the Kerrang Awards. Yeah, that was my favourite. That's yeah. my favourite thing. You beat Nickelback, album. you beat System, you beat Sum 41, you beat Puddle of Mud even. Like, you know, it's yeah. like, I mean, okay, okay, Puddle of Mud, they're all right. But you're actually, yeah. uh, I've got, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'll put them at the end as a as a bit of an adjunct. I feel bad about Nickelback. That's the only one I feel bad about. <laughs> and, you know, you actually got a quote from you after winning. You say, quote, it's the Krang Awards, which generally means everyone getting absolutely hammered. I imagine we're not going to be able to walk home. Vast amounts of absinthe will be consumed, as is the usual practice at these things. That was how it was, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, I remember the day after that, me and Colin, I think that was the one that was at the, what's that hotel on? Um, Park Savoy Lane. or? Savoy, yeah. It was in one of those, mm. and we stayed over. Me and Colin had a room in the hotel afterwards because we had press to do the next day, so they got us a hotel room. And we woke up. I was definitely still drunk, and we had to go and do an interview with Zane Lowe on his brown sofa. Remember we used to do that for MTV? Gonzo, too. yeah, of course. Gonzo, yeah. yeah, on the brown sofa. So that <laughs> I don't remember anything about the actual night, but I do remember being mortally hungover sat on that brown sofa the next day and I think I basically said nothing for the entire interview because I couldn't and the only thing I did was wrestle Zane off the end of the sofa at the end of the interview to sort of close it and that was my <laughs> one contribution <laughs> I'm aware of that interview I've tried to find it I haven't been able to find it unfortunately and I say find it I've typed it into YouTube but but yeah, yeah I couldn't find it Let's go to bassist The Andy now for his recollections of recording the band's mighty debut. I do want to get on to the debut and signing with Columbia, which was, you know, from what I gather from the guys and also speaking to the man himself, Blair, you know, it was in no small part due to MD Blair McDonald and that relationship, wasn't it, to that coming about? Oh, God, yeah. Blair McDonald is officially one of the loveliest blokes ever. I, I can confirm fact, that. <laughs> yeah. Fact. Having so, chatted to him, he's he's incredible, yeah. <clears throat> Coupled with the fact that he actually grew up in Paisley, like in Scotland, which is the same place my parents are from. So like right. straight away, me and, me and him basically <laughs> were like, yeah, straight in there. So <laughs> it's like, yeah, absolutely top bloke. Love him the bits. So, yeah, amazing. <laughs> and you, so, yeah, so, and he so, really believed in us straight hmm. from the off. Like he, he was... He's, He's definitely a man who knows, you know, he knows what he's doing. Like he's done the business long enough. And, you know, when he says something important, you bloody well listen to him. And 
it, it, but he was just the you could feel the excitement coming from him about us, and in turn that made us go, you know, really believe more in yourself because I suppose that's the thing. Like everybody, I think all musicians at some point have that kind of imposter syndrome thing going on. We literally like, oh, I really shouldn't be here. I'm t- I, I shouldn't be doing so well. I shouldn't be doing this. You know, you don't and. And like uh, in hindsight, obviously sitting back and going, we did a lot, and that first album is you know brilliant, um, you know, and I'm really so so proud of what we did, and you know, like like you can't I can't put into measure how much like Integra it was for Blair pushing us as well, so he was al- almost a bit like a like a sixth member in a little wow. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of labels, they you wouldn't get that. You just no, said I, yeah. all about the numbers. And the record is, you know, it, I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary as a debut, isn't it, Andy? I mean, I know you're biased. I know you're on the album, but like, just as a, it's a landmark release for so many people. It's like a touchstone of this era. It's just, it's a masterpiece, Loki. Wow, you know, I, I, think, re- it, I really think it's stunning. I really I think, think I think it's harder for. I can, and I'm pretty sure the rest of the guys feel that way. It's harder to feel like that because you were there. Of course. You know, mm-hmm. I'm on it. You know, I remember recording it. You, know, <laughs> yeah. the, you remember the, Dave Sardi and... Magic oh, yeah, Shop yeah. Like yeah. in the Magic Shop in New York recording, mm-hmm. like uh, a little tidbit. There's a song that towards the end, it's like the most sort of captioned metal song on the record called Gone Too Far. And I recorded that with my foot on the desk. Right. So... I recorded my bass with my foot up on the desk like a monitor, basically, and they kind of like riled me on to play harder and just do it like so. Yeah, rock and roll. <laughs> but you know, you you just want to you know you want to enjoy the moment, and you don't think about ramifications about what everybody will think about it, especially now. You know, still mad to think people saying to me about how much the album means to them now. So. It blows me away. It still blows me away to this day. It really does. So, and you know, I'm very proud of it. But I'm also proud of, like, in a way, all the records we've done. So, yeah, no, absolutely. And um, what about seeing it in the shops? That sort of thing, like release week. Any memories from that? Something that might have been touched on before, like uh, yeah. it kind of like you see in the shops and you see a CD. But we all know that, and I'm glad that. Vinyl is making a revival now because one of the best things about vinyl is that the, the cover is massive. So you yeah. can really soak in the actual cover. Um, and uh, yeah, like, like we're seeing it in the shops and it's like in like, like um, all the shops and they've got the big old sticker on it and this, that and the other. And that's like, oh, that's wonderful. But it's uh, like when we, we were in playing in Manchester and the actual vinyls turned up and like it was the whole it was the whole joke like oh my god smell the gloves here and stuff like that and you're right. like sniffing the vinyl and stuff like that and you just <laughs> you're just holding it it is something about holding your own album in a vinyl um, oh wow uh, yeah so blown away by that so <laughs> but that that for me was more real than seeing it in a seeing a cd in the shop sort of thing but it's like it wasn't just in the shops you guys were just you guys were on top of the pops 
Like you've got you guys from giant main twice giant mainstream TV. Like you know, I consider this podcast a little bit like you know the classic film Rashomon. We're seeing all these things from different angles, and the, you know, the truth is kind of in between the lines. So I've asked Colin and I've asked Larry. Now yourself, Andy, talk to him about Top of the Pops, the first performance. What do you remember about that? Next, a band whose name is inspired by extreme sports. Company poster, a hundred reasons. reasons to be cheerful perhaps richard blackwood was hosting i'll set you off with that one yeah the man the myth the legends richard blackwood <laughs> where is he now is i he don't still... know i don't know but I'm sure the last i saw he was, he was on, everywhere like... at a certain time was he in, like... was he in like eastenders or something like i think that. he was actually maybe he does musicals now west end i might have seen but he was in eastenders for a while yeah but um... i'm sure he's i'm sure he's uh, doing a panto somewhere right now <laughs> he might be at the reunion shows you never know like off he's more than welcome, more if, he than welcome. if he turns up you know but it, yeah it was um surreal yeah we were in the middle of a tour and they kind of instead of a day off we kind of ended up in, in a bbc house you know the big the donut whatever you call it like bbc mm. center i was like taking it all in because i'd always been a big fan as ironically enough I like talking at the top of the pops, but I was a massive fan, still am a massive fan of later with Jules Holland. Oh yeah, of course. And we were told, oh, this is the same studio they filmed later with Jules Holland. And I was like, that's amazing. So like, that's one thing I wish we'd actually played later with Jules Holland. I'd love to do that. Like, I would have. Yeah, you guys would have been great in the circle as well at the start. I know, but like, so, and at least they play live. But we Mm. we were like, as the young sort of stubborn guys that we were, they were literally like, oh, I kind of want you to play the backing track. Maybe you could have the singing live. And we're like, no, we're playing everything live. And they were literally like, there was like a, the sound desk was like in like a balcony, like hidden out the way. Our, our, our sound guy at the time who came with us to do it, he was just like, I have no idea if it sounded good or not because I literally just turned it roughly to the right place, but I couldn't see you. <laughs> I don't know where you were. I, was, I could have been anywhere. So like, I was... It could have got a lot worse than it than it did, but actually, you know, it came out all right. And you know, we we were quite. It's quite nice to know that we were like one of the only bands, really, who ever did it live. Didn't like none of none of it was like overdubbed. So. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, also definitely, undeniably, one of the heaviest bands that's ever been on the show as well. Well, with the second time we did it, actually, funny enough, um, Papa Roach were doing it as well. Night and you guys supported them right around this time, maybe a little earlier. Well, we only ever played one show with them, which yeah. is a they're, they're, it's their first time playing Brixton. <sighs> and the the most memorable thing about that, and this is one of those sort of very much in the what were you thinking mentality. <laughs> um, they were all in black, so we were like, right, guys, I've got a great idea. Let's all dress in white and rent white instruments. And this will be like the opposite of the band. And then we did it and we all literally like, are you guys off to go and play cricket? Because that's what it looks like. It's just, it was embarrassing. But oh. thankfully we played all right. So <laughs> yeah. oh, and I was, I was, I was, I was some, we sort of rented a white bass for me. And they were like, if you scratch this, it'll be about a grand's damage, like, gonna cost you about a grand i was like so i was like babying this thing through this gig dressed in what looked like cricket whites like it was just yeah but the main thing was is that uh jacoby the the singer like he really liked us he's a lovely lovely man he really really liked us and uh 
yeah, that was yeah, it was it was That's what awesome. it is. It's one of those like you know you can look back and laugh now, but like at the time afterwards, really, just like what the hell did we just? I'd do love that to for? see photos, or I mean, there must be some footage out there. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by that. But but yeah, you know, at this time, the debut had been out, and also you know you really affiliated with a lot of these hot young bands like yourself, like Papa Roach. You played at the only two UK gigs of the Get Up Kids as well, which is pretty cool. You know, the sort of hot emo pop band of that summer. But, um, you know, what was it like for you, just, I guess, mentally more than anything? Was it sort of pinching yourself, like, wow, I'm actually in quite a successful band here, and, like, these tours are big, these gigs are getting bigger? Like, must have been crazy. I think it was, obviously, hindsight is one thing where you look back and go, Jesus, we did that. Oh, my God, we did that. Oh, my God, that. Mm. But at the time, you kind of just swept up on it. And because, especially early doors before we'd signed to Columbia and stuff like that, like we all still had day jobs. Mm. So literally it was like, you do your job, you get in the car, you go to the gig, you play the gig, you come back at stupid o'clock in the morning and then you go to work the next day. So it's literally, it's like all days just roll in to one and you kind of just don't take it in. You just don't, yeah, you kind of just sort of, it's kind of like, you know, when, 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 um, people basically, they like to drive their cars quite close behind a truck on a motorway because mm. the slipstream makes it easier just to coast along. Sure. It's kind of like that, you know, like <laughs> we just coasted along, like, and just, you know, we've got the blinkers on, like, you know, when's the next gig, when we're doing more recording, like, you like you, you don't have time to sort of sit down and go and sort of take it all in. So it's not, it wasn't until, like, you know, when things started going really well that you kind of sit back and go, wait a minute, <laughs> where did I come from? But, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, like it's, thinking back to it now, obviously we just, we, we, you know, we were up and down the country like all the time and plus trying to sort of juggle around jobs and stuff like that. But, you know, like that's how you did it back in the day, you know, like there was, internet was uh, lacking at best. You know, um, there was no Instagram or Twitter or anything like that. Do you know what I mean? Like you had to, you, mm. a lot of it was word of mouth or if you're lucky, you can get in like one of the magazines like Prang or Enemy or something like that. So yeah, for when we finally got into like magazines like Krang and Enemy, we we're like, oh, I guess we're doing all right now, you know, and sitting there, you buy it, buy the copy on the, on the, on the day of like uh, day of publication, you're like, yeah, and you read it like, oh, there's a picture of me and they're creating like enemy, and you take it, give it to your mum, and go, yeah, look how proud you that are. That is a mad achievement, though. I mean, you guys were on the cover a few times of Kerrang and Enemy, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, were we on the front cover of Enemy? I don't know about Enemy now that I say it out loud, but definitely Kerrang. I've seen a few of the Kerrang ones around. We're, but... we're definitely, tw- well, the whole band was twice. Colin was on once with, um. He was on the front cover, and it was, was him, John from Speedhorn, and the Welsh man that he shall not be named, basically. Yes, right. Uh, the less said about him, the better. <laughs> And now into a chat with drummer Andy Buse on his takeaways from the album sessions, as well as a story about 100 Reasons His Time supporting one of the greatest rock bands ever to walk the earth. You know, I want to focus on the debut album now, which is, you know, rightly considered a bit of a minor masterpiece and an album that was very well received at the time and has only gotten more and more appreciated. But let's talk about that beginning. I mean, that must have been 
took an experience for you to be in your early 20s, to be heading over to New York, to record your debut, going to Magic Shop Studio. I mean, it's the thing of dreams, really, isn't it? It really is. And it was a strange experience. I found it quite overwhelming, actually, at the start, because when you're when you're younger and you're in a band and obviously you have these aspirations and dreams of becoming a band that matters you know to people and and they are they are dreams but when when we started climbing the ladder and we we started having interest from record companies and things and it started becoming real you kind of you kind of in a way have to start taking it a little bit more seriously you know because it's kind of stepping up and it's i found it a little bit a little bit quick actually because we kind of we were in a band and we all of a sudden were signed to Columbia. And we, like I said, we'd already written a bunch of songs, but we really had to hone our skills, you know, and kind of make these songs, songs that were, that were really going to be good, good songs for people to listen to. I remember arriving in New York and just being a little bit, a little bit afraid really, because Dave Sardi was already a well-established producer by then, you know, he'd worked with a lot of big bands and we knew that we wanted to record with him the fact that we were actually there with him was amazing. <laughs> but all of a sudden we're there. And I, I think I was about 21 at the time or something, 22. Uh, when you are 21 or 22, you think you're quite old and you know about things. and that, But you really, you are quite young still. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was a lot of pressure. And I remember being in the studio and we started, when we were tracking, you, you, you track the drums first, generally. And so the, all the attention is on, on you to get a good drum sound to, to play well. And... He had funny ways of, um, I always remember Dave having funny ways of saying whether it was a good take or not, or like kind of trying to explain, oh, this groove should be like this. You know, you should try and make it sound like this. And I always remember he had this one one thing he would do. If I did a drum track and he didn't think it was really very good, he would just kind of click the talk back, but then not really say anything. So you could hear the click back talk. It would come on and then you would hear it click off again. And that would kind of mean like, right, do it again. <laughs> you know? That's devastating. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't like, I don't know. I, I, we, we would go through, I would be playing the same song over and over and over again. I don't know, sometimes like, you know, six or seven times just back to back. Hmm. And then eventually he would say like, that was it. You've nailed it. That was brilliant. Come and have a listen. You know, we go back into the control room and listen to it. And um I learned a lot, actually, in that time. We, we, we'd had studio experience in the past doing demos and doing EPs and whatnot and singles and things. But that felt like, that felt like it was something bigger. Because we were in New York, you know, because we were with Dave Sardi, it, it did feel like we were kind of, we were really doing something. And it, it was really nice to actually, once the drum tracks had been done, to, to watch the album being built you know, with yeah. the bass lines coming in, the guitars, the overdubs, the singing and all, all of that. And it, you could feel it was becoming a, a really, a really good record. You know, I could, I, we could hear it building in the studio and it was, it was a really nice thing to be a part of. I have fond memories of that time. You know, it was a watershed moment for the band, but also in many ways a watershed moment for the world. I mean, you were in New York when 9-11 happened. I, I actually wasn't. Okay. So after I'd recorded my drum tracks, we'd done trying to remember now we'd flown home oh that yeah we'd flown home to play reading reading and lee's festival and which is in the bank holiday weekend at the end of august so we'd flown home to do that and then i think after reading and lee's larry colin and paul all flew back to new york to complete the the record and the uh, me and andy gilmore stayed at home 
and then we were getting kind of recordings of the of how they were getting on you know listening to it and saying what we felt about it yeah so I, I wasn't actually there for that event no no but it's just um I mean I only mention it kind of because it's just kind of unfortunate coincidence really but mm. it's an interesting wrinkle in in the backdrop of the record any memories abiding memories of magic shop because that again has such a legendary it has it's such an amazing sounding place um it's really unassuming so you walk down this kind of back street off um broadway you kind of turn off broadway down in the lower east side of manhattan Hmm. and then you kind of turn down another street and it's it's just this gray door and you would never know it's there you know and it's you kind of open the door and then there's this it's really old carpets and old furniture and then there's there's all these records on the wall that have been recorded there and you're kind of you know you immediately look at these records and think oh my god that was recorded here or like oh that person's been in this room yeah and you that's definitely in your mind when you if i think you walk through there's like a reception area and then you walk through another door and you're straight into the control room and then another door and then you're in the live room you know so it's all very, it's very compact and there was like a downstairs break room but you could you could uh it was amazing to think when you're sitting in that little room uh, obviously for me i was playing the drums uh, and knowing that all of those other really, really legendary people had also been in that room. Yeah, it was great. It was such an unassuming place, but it's such a wonderful sounding room, especially for drums. I think the drums sounded yeah. fantastic yeah. in there. Yeah, it's, it sadly went out of business in 2016. But oh, did it? Yeah, it did, unfortunately. Uh, okay. Bowie recorded his final two albums there. Foo right. Fighters, Lou Reed. And, and yeah, yeah. It's, it's absolute murderer's row when you look back at the, at the legacy of that. But... um. Focus on the album now, the sort of aftermath, the release of it. Like, any memories from when it was released? Did you, like, seek it out in stores? Did you give copies <laughs> to family and friends? Like, You know what? We have this, um, wh- where we're from, we have a, there's a, a record shop called The Rock Box, which was a really cool place um, where we used to go and find records when we were younger. And they actually opened up their shop at midnight on the night uh, wow. the record was released. Um, which was a huge moment for us as well, yeah. because we always looked up to the people that owned that shop and we always we always went in there to find our music. And I remember they said, well, you know, you guys come along and you can sort of be there when the first records are sold. And we were kind of really happy to do that. And we signed some things and, you know, it was, it was cool. But I remember arriving and there was, like, there was like a line of, a queue of people all the way down the, all the way down the road. And I remember being amazed thinking, oh my, you know, wow, this is, our local town and there's all these people here to buy this record that was really cool so we were there from midnight till two in the morning or whatever to to watch the record yeah being sold in our own little record shop and that was a very that was a nice moment actually and all our friends turned up and our all our families and stuff so it was yeah that was really cool and i think we might have done something a few days later at a a record shop in where were we in oxford street somewhere was it hmv or something we did another thing there where we played a few songs and then signed some records and things. I think by that point, we'd, we'd already, already been, I think we'd already been touring for about two years. You know, we played all these songs so many times and we'd recorded the record and we'd released some singles off of it and EPs and stuff. And it was, it was really kind of, by the time it came out, it was this big, almost not not a relief that's the wrong word but like a celebration like yeah. it's finally here and it's finally out and everyone can finally listen to it um i remember thinking it was a, it was really nice that actually now it's out out and about and everyone can listen to it and what what really struck me i think i don't know if i'm remembering this correctly but we played ozfest 
we ended up headlining the Radio One stage at yes, that's right. and I think that was a few days, maybe a week after the record had been released. I remember coming on stage there, and I could hear the crowd for the first time singing the lyrics to the songs louder than I could hear Colin singing them, <laughs> which was an insane experience. I think we, I think we came on stage with "I'll Find You." It's always a good one to come on to that yeah. one because it's there. Everyone jumps up and down and goes a bit mental. And yeah, and then the, the crowd started singing. And I just remember looking out to this huge amount of people just singing the words back, thinking, you know, wow, you know, this is really something now. You know, we, we're starting to get somewhere. <laughs> no, no, that massively, that was Saturday the 25th of May, 2002 right. at Donington right. Park. Tickets were 37.50 back then, including Bargain. that. Yeah, and yeah, you headlined the Karangan Radio 1 stage. Interestingly, Hell is for Heroes is on there as well, who you're going out with yep. tour with. So yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, and yeah, you look at the. I mean, the lineup is just. I mean, Aussie obviously headlined Tool Slayer, System, Cradle yeah, of Filth, Black Label Society, insane. But you know, with the album record, with the album release, then sorry, that that was kind of you know a starting pistol for the craziness beginning, really, with you guys, yeah. with all the tours, with all the acclaim. Like you said just earlier that when you were in New York, because you were so young, obviously you were much older at this point. And when you were in New York, you know, that was, you know, a moment for you where you've, you've got to adjust, you know, you've got to really get your priorities right. Like, how was it suddenly being in like a pretty bloody successful rock band that are playing giant shows with the crowd overseeing the lead singer? Like that again must have been quite the head shock. It was, it was. I mean, it was a really, really good experience. I, I suppose when you're, when you're in it, it kind of feels like a natural progression. And it's hard, to, it's hard to actually step back and pay attention to everything that's happening. Because you're kind of, I don't know, you're in this thing and it's just going along, you know, and you're kind of, you, you're, you're, you'll speak to the management and I'll say, right, next week we're doing this. Like you're playing this festival, you're doing this radio show, you're doing this, you know, and then before you know it you're, you're doing top of the pops next week you're doing this <laughs> yeah and yeah and it was it was it was almost like it was almost like we were kind of just taking it all as it was coming so it was it was a lot of fun it was very tiring but at the same time it felt like it was kind of like right this is what happens next then okay so next week we play that festival and then we do top of the pops okay cool and then and then we're going to go and do that tour and then we're going to go and do that tour and it, it it wasn't really until that album cycle had finished and we we kind of stopped touring and started writing the next record where we could actually take a step back and say, and then, and then kind of, I guess it's uh, retrospectively then you're kind of going, oh, wow, we've really, you know, we've really achieved a lot over the last couple of years. And it was just, I don't know, it was just an amazing feeling to know that we'd, we'd, we'd achieved that from being such a, you know, from being that little band where you're just kind of hoping things might happen to at the end of that tour cycle headlining Brixton Academy, which would be you know, the ultimate dream yeah. as a young as a young musician. Yeah, I don't really know how we felt about it. I think we were just so caught up in it all that we were kind of obviously we we enjoyed it. We enjoyed the time. And um, honestly, I, I, I can't remember actually stepping back and really thinking about it while it was happening. I think it wasn't until afterwards where we were kind of like, wow, that was good. Anyway, next record. <laughs> yeah. And there was so much crazy stuff happening. And obviously I've spoke to all of the guys about this. But one of the things that I haven't brought up that I just kind of missed in my research, and I can't believe that this happened, Andy. You supported ACDC. Yes. The Ham- Hammersmith Apollo. This was um, the 19th of October, 2003. This apparently was your 232nd show as the band, according to your right. website. But Wow. I mean, that is an accolade above accolades to share the stage you know with what? those guys. 
I remember that. I really remember that one because mm. that was huge. obviously everyone's a huge ACDC fan. Yeah. What's not to like? Mm. But that was I again, if memory serves me correctly, we were we used to rehearse just down the road from Hammersmith, uh, Hammersmith Apollo. And we, we had a call while we were rehearsing saying we were rehearsing for a tour. That's right. And someone, I think it might have even been Rad, sort of phoned up and said, mm. hey, ACDC need an opener for their, they were doing some sort of anniversary show there and they wanted an opening band. Um, do you guys fancy doing it? Of, of course, we were kind of like, well, yeah, that, that would be, that would be good. And so we all went, we, we literally drove just down the road with all our gear and um, set up there. And we, while we were sound checking, this is the amazing thing. I remember Angus Young, uh, was walking around the front of the stage there. And I remember just sort of, you know, the sound man sort of saying kick drum and, you know, the kick drum's being played and Angus Young's walking around. I'm thinking, I was thinking, wow, that's that's actually Angus Young's, you know, he's just walking around the front of the stage there from ACDC and I'm sitting here. <laughs> it was a mad experience. And um, we played the show and I remember we, they'd sorted it out so we could watch them from the front of the balcony up there. In oh. So we were kind of like that kind of, I don't know, we played the show did our did our job and then literally ran around to the balcony and watched ACDC from there, which was incredible experience. But yeah, it was just another one of those funny things that that happens. Um, like I was saying before, it was kind of like, do you want to go and open for ACDC? And we were like, of course we do. And then it just happened. And then the next day you sort of think, bloody hell, we've played with ACDC now. <laughs> and it's definitely something I do tell people to this day. Yeah. It's, it's something I'm very proud of. <sighs> Yeah, the set list is online as well. I'm just looking at it now. Starting with Hell Ain't a Bad Place to Be, Into Back in Black. They did Thunderstruck, Hell's Bells, TNT. I mean, they obviously did everything pretty much. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And back to Colin now, where we turn our focus to the huge amount of touring that the band did behind the debut. And also the joy of seeing your record finally in the shops. I mean, the sheer mania of festivals that you attended and performed at in this period is insane. Like Ozfest, Isle of Wight, Holtzfred. Uh, Provincy Rock, I'm saying. Provincy Rock, yeah. Provincy Rock, thank you. Glastonbury, you know. You guys were so big at the time, you kept a bloody tour diary for the BBC on their website. Like, you know, there's loads of stuff. Like, was this the time when you played Reading and the power went out and you encouraged people to make human pyramids? Or was that a later time? That was that year. That was was this year. I think it was that 2002 because it's kind of one of the things where you want it to be, like, you know, it's not the end of your year, obviously, but 
Mm. You know, it was, a, it was a pretty defining moment. I think it was our first time on the main stage at Reading. It was a good slot. I remember actually watching, was that that year? I think it was, because I, I loved Dinager Escape Plan. Oh, yeah. So I was by the side of the stage, and I think it was when Greg took a poo in a bag. And, you know, it was cool. I actually remember taking, I took Zane Lowe to go and see Dillinger Escape Plan at the LA2 back in the day. That was a good night out. Um, and those Dillinger guys were just lovely, you know, really nice um, again. And I was watching at the side of, this is kind of quite rock and roll, but I was watching at the side of the stage with Brandon Boyd from Incubus. I was like, come on, Brandon, come and check out, you know, Dillinger. You'll love them. They'll be really good. And then literally like Greg's taken a poo into a bag and Brandon's just kind of like, what the hell have you done? What have you brought me for this for? And I was, you know, and then I spoke to Greg a little bit later on and I said, what happened and what's going on? He's like, well, effectively, I, I had to go and there was nothing I could do about it. So I had to go. So what he was really doing was styling it out. <laughs> it's probably the easiest way to say it. Um, and then we went on stage later um, right. and it was great. And then, yeah, the power now, I think someone who would do, they throw things, do like an egg or something. Yeah. And I think the person that was supposed to be dealing with was like on lunch <laughs> or whatever. So again, you kind of just have to sort of make do and, and understand that, you know, stuff happens when you're playing live. And, and the thing is, we don't think we, we didn't come off stage feeling all browbeaten and done in and go, oh no, because when you're on stage, if the power goes out, it could only be for like a minute, but it feels like it's an hour because mm-hmm. it just does. Mm-hmm. But, you know, everyone still seemed to have a really good time when the power came back on, the crowd were straight back in there and right behind us. So, yeah, even when that happened, I don't think I was really deflated. I think it would no. have been nice to have not dropped a song because I think that's what we did, but it was all right, yeah. And it was only, I think, it was stage left that the power went down, so I think I could still make a noise. So, yeah, you just do silly things, don't you, and ask people to do things, and it's quite funny that they go and do them. The vibe that I've gotten in this conversation so far is that you're a very humble guy, you know, unpretentious, but um, the energy that you project on stage is absolutely immense. And at this point where we are now in the story in 2002, after the debuts came out, it's been very successful. You're playing all these big festivals. I mean, I'm looking now on my screen at a ticket to Ozfest where you're <laughs> headlining the Kerrang stage. And it's an unbelievable lineup of Aussie, Tool, System, Slayer, Black Label Society right at the bottom there. Like, did you you find you have to keep your ego in check like because you were the front man of like a really popular band like I think everyone was just in the band was just really cool and I think that yeah we were always happy to be where we were we didn't feel like we had to prove anything to anybody because you're just doing what you do we didn't feel entitled to be where we were and maybe that's the difference mm. you know I always find with Americans they can be really sort of matter of fact and they can just talk about things in a really sort of you know yeah you know just took a trip to space last night and then hung out with uh, Barack Obama sure. you know and it's all sort of matter of fact whereas if you kind of say stuff like that and you, you know you're UK based <laughs> you probably think that you've got a bit of a bit of an ego on you yeah. yeah but for us we were just kind of our own we sort of kept each other in check um but also don't think that we necessarily got out of hand either because we would, we always just loved making music and playing shows. And that was good enough for us. We didn't need to have the rock and roll lifestyle. We didn't need to go and sleep around or anything like that. We didn't need to use it as a way to sort of take advantage of other people. We were just really happy doing what we were doing. So for us, it just wasn't, 
wasn't really sort of thought about the ego thing wasn't thought about you know i think the only thing that was quite funny was because you know we're old enough to sort of love spinal tap and you would see a few people that recognize you and it's that kind of moment where they go oh here we go here we go you know yeah, and yeah. That, but that wasn't ego that was just put your smiles on and make sure that you know the people that are talking to you you know you don't always have to be in a great mood but yeah don't have to show that to, to fans and stuff like that so you know so that they walk away thinking you know that was nice that was nice meeting that person i remember meeting phil and samuel once and he told oh. me to f off oh and that was before i was doing anything in my band i went to see pantera at brixton academy yeah. waited outside like you do just to get a glimpse and stuff because you're a fan and he was hammered or whatever and told me to to do one i was like oh okay so that's the type of person you are and the funny thing was is when sort of bump into him later on and you're doing download festival and things like that that they're um you know they're not like that no but it's just like well but you can be like that to your fans that's probably worse but anyway yeah just there was just no sort of real wish to be egotistical because you're just having fun doing what you're doing and you know you really were breaking through at this point and i think a marker of that is that on the 17th of may 2002 you guys played top of the pops like yeah, I seem to remember it was I think it was the day before we did like Hall for Cornwall in Truro and we were just hanging out with all the brilliant people at you know Surface Against Sewage and stuff like that. And I think it was probably the only day off that we actually had had. And I don't even remember, you know, we were very busy at that time. Yeah. But that was kind of a day off, and it's like you've got to go and do top of the pops. And I think at that point we were like, oh, okay, go and do that. And Papa Roach were there, I think. So that was nice. Okay, you know, that's cool. Yeah. Well, we got on with those guys. They mm. were nice. You know, they were great. Um, so that was all right. That made it a bit of a sort of easier thing to do. But I think really just a day off, we kind of just could have done with the day off. <laughs> um, so it wasn't like what I would call like the, the pinnacle of our live performance. But also as well, Top of the Pops, we, we were fully playing live. Mm. And they're not, they're not built. No. for that type of mix so we had our sound engineer brother gurney great human being um and he was trying to sort of supervise them and help them sort of mix a live fully live rock band but you know it just wasn't sort of really great and i think yeah it just could have been better <laughs> it's an awesome clip i mean i urge people to go track it down it's on youtube richard blackwood introducing which is he did very yeah. 2002 of him and uh yeah you get the crowd swaying their hands in unison at the top you jump off the riser the band you know the energy that you bring is intense that must have been kind of surreal for you in of itself you know what i mean i mean there's so many bands that have been at your position that just i don't want to say the hallowed stage of top of the pops but you know undeniably it has a huge resonance and legacy like yeah it does and i think it's one of those things where it's you know the the everyday person knows top of the pops or knew mm. top of the pops back then so you know you go in and like sign a publishing deal right and you're gonna go to your bank and say you know just doing this is going on or whatever and they go oh what do you do and you go oh, yeah i'm in a band and then they go oh, what pubs do you play and then you go well it's kind of not really the case, really. I've just done, Do you know who Richard Blackwood is? Yeah. <laughs> just done Top of the Pops. But if you yeah. tell people, you could go, I've toured the world over and they don't care. But if you told the average person at that time that you played Top of the Pops, yeah. they're like, oh, you know, it was mm-hmm. uh, an ears prick up moment. So from that perspective, it was a big deal. 
Um, and it was quite funny. Uh, our, my friend Omar, who still friends with now, does tour management and stuff and everything. I think he was working at the BBC. So he was like, come on, come on, let's go and have a look at the Blue Peter Garden. And you go there and you go, oh, that's a bit small. And then he's like, right, come into this warehouse here. And you go in there and he's like, that's the TARDIS. Right. <laughs> <And you're> like, <laughs> exactly. So you go, oh, all right, cool. You know, um, so we've got a little bit of a tour. That's amazing. I'll be like, where, where's Sir Killer Lot? Like, you show me him. Like. <laughs> exactly, right? So um, it was cool for that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're still like, I really need a day off right now. And this could have been a good day off for me yeah. to just sleep. So, yeah. you know, but again, that's kind of the thing. You know, you have to be, you know, professional in what you do. And if your people are investing in you and your performance, you've got to put that in and you've got to do that. That's, that's just what you do. And you were just on a tear this year, really. I mean, in August 2002, you win Best Album at the Kerrang Awards. We did. That was a very heavy night. Yeah, I mean, you beat right, Nickelback, System Redown, Sum 41, Puddle of Mud even. Like, you know. oh, I can take the Nickelback and Puddle of Mud any day of the week. You yeah. Know, easy. Anyone should, <laughs> everyone should beat them. Everyone should. But I but think si- yeah, it, System and Sum 41 at the time were like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, System of a Down, like, yeah. amazing. Amazing. Um, and again, Sum 41, just brilliant. So, yeah, that was really cool. That was kind of like a British year. Because I think A won... Yes, like they did. Best live act, I think. And I think Muse won best British band, I think. Or the other way around. I'm really it was the other way around, yeah. And yeah. Muse actually spoke about you. They dedicated the award to their crew and to you guys because they had an amazing tour with you. They were just lovely. Really just lovely. Those Muse guys are great. And a lot of their crew, that crew for them now, used to crew for us. So there's a real kind of, I don't know, sort of kinship there. There mm. was at the time. I mean, I don't speak to Matt Bellamy these days at all. But well, I know that if I could, you know, but that wouldn't, that doesn't mean anything, if that no. makes sense, you know, because he, he, but he was lovely, kind. Don was great. Chris was great. They were just wonderful to us. Their crew was amazing. You know, that was, I think we'd done a couple of European tours before going out of them, but they were just brilliant, like just kind, you know, and, mm. and, and amazing. You know, you, I don't care what anyone says, whether you like the music or not, go and see the show. Because yeah. they are literally one of the best live bands on the planet. And they were they were back then. So that was just a really, really drunken night. And I think Larry and I actually shared a bed because we had one hotel room and yeah. we were so bad it didn't matter. And I think we had to literally get up at about nine o'clock or something to go and see Zane Lowe and do like his MTV thing. And I remember that. Like, I remember being there. <laughs> I don't remember too much of it. I remember <laughs> doing it. And I think that was over in Camden at the time. But, yeah, that was a heavy night. And I seem to recall still being on a dance floor at, like, 4 a.m. with somebody from Raging Speedhorn. Right. Because that's what you were doing. Raging Speedhorn, but, you know, they, they were the party animals back then. Yeah. But it was great. It was a great night. Yeah, no, Larry's quoted as saying on the BBC article, it's the Kerrang Awards, which generally means everybody getting absolutely hammered. I imagine we're going, we're not going to be able to walk home. Vast amounts of absinthe will be consumed. I think you have to do that. I think it's part of the contract. Yes. So I don't think they let you in unless you do that. Um, (laughs) But it was a phenomenal night. You know, we were great friends with the guys in A, who were just, again, fantastic. We knew the Muse guys. It was this real sort of everybody's doing great this is amazing and that's I think probably the time when everyone I think sort of felt rewarded for you know toiling away 
doing great shows, putting out great music. And that was, I think, sort of Kerrang just sort of rewarding that. And I was mm. at the table. I think Finchy from The Office was oh, <laughs> sharing our table and stuff. Ralph, quite funny. Ralph yeah. Inson. That's yeah. great. I don't remember talking to him too much, though. I think Ralph Little was there as well. Oh. There was a bunch of people around. It was cool. That's night. amazing. Yeah, no, I um, I actually do a Royal Family podcast as a little side thing. So I I would love to speak to Ralph Little. I'm a huge fan. Yeah, I don't know him. I haven't got his No, I don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can you get me in the Ralph Little world? Yeah, all the Ralphs. And, uh, you know, ending that year with a winter headline tour of the UK, mm-hmm. I mean, huge shows. Uh, you played the Brixton Academy as well, yeah. right? Yeah. So again, it was just a really good way to sort of end the year. Um, yeah, it was brilliant. <laughs> what can I say? It's, it's awesome. just mad. No, I love going through it. I love like vicariously living through because yeah, this this year was insane, really. And it was kind of like, is it fair to say it was kind of like the the dog days of traditional media? Like I know already Napster was a thing and yeah, downloading was a thing, but it kind of wasn't as didn't have the foothold that it did maybe five six years later. You know, it was on the cusp. I think mm. literally around that time, it was on the cusp. That tour was amazing because we had catering, right? And the lady, I think, who was our catering person was called Sandy. And I think she had a lady with her who helped out called Gemma, I think. And they, again, were amazing. Mm. But the best thing about catering on tour is like, you know, oh, it's November. I think, can we have a Christmas dinner? And they're like, yeah. And we're like, all right. So <laughs> I think in Exeter, we had like a full Christmas dinner and stuff, you know, and things like that. So yeah. we definitely sort of played around and made it sort of fun. Um, but that tour was was good. It was just a couple of weeks towards the end of the year, and it was a really nice way to end it. And I suppose really for us in the UK, it was kind of the the end of that sort of album campaign, I think, because we'd kind of done quite a lot of shows leading up to it, and then it was time to sort of get writing again. So, like, you know, we discussed it already that you're really into pop culture. I know you're into, like, old horror films and, and, and video games you've mentioned and stuff like that. Like, what was it like seeing your music in shops and, and seeing it available as a product? It was really exciting. And I think we were in, I think we were in Manchester in May before the album came out. And I think we were signing vinyl. So we had this thing that was called, like, The May Tour. It's just what we called it. And it was just the, the pre, just before the album was coming out. It was a, a week or two. And I think it was Manchester and you know, the vinyl sort of turned up. So we were like, oh, smell the glove is here. <laughs> you know, um, and that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's when we were kind of like, whoa, that's really cool. I think we did, I think we did an Astoria show headlining. And I think we did Download Festival or Ozfest, mm. like that, like just before, like it might even have been like that weekend or, the, or whatever. And I think we got like two 5k reviews in Kerrang like in that week, which was awesome. But yeah, we went into, I went into town. I was living in, I still live in Farnborough now actually, but I lived in Farnborough back then. <laughs> um, haven't strayed too far. Um, and I remember sort of walking into like WH Smith's or whatever the record store was in town at the time. And then sort of picking it up and seeing that it's kind of on sale, which is really cool. Um, Cause you know, it's in the shops and, and yeah. that kind of thing. And it was exciting. It was really cool. Um, because again, you know, people, not just the band, but there's a lot of people that work behind the scenes to really try and, you know, make things work. Um, so it wasn't just like a combination of like, look what we did, guys. It's like kind of like, look what everybody did. Yeah. You know, it was the belief in Columbia. You know, you don't make great shows happen unless you have great crew, great tour managers, great techs, great sound engineers. 
you know, all those things come together to make the show, which obviously promotes your music and things like that. So for us, it wasn't like a look what the fivers did. It's kind of like a look what everybody did moment. So that's what was really quite nice about it. So yeah, it was, I think it was WH Smith. I think I remember walking to WH Smith and seeing it on the shelf when it came out and thinking, wow. I think the cool thing was, was in our record contract, it said, if we sold 20,000 copies within six weeks, we would automatically get to make another record. But I think we did 20 odd thousand like in the first week, which was really cool. So that felt a little bit kind of like, that's awesome. Yeah, that is unbelievable. So yeah, um, yeah, it was exciting. It's cool. It was, uh, and everyone was sort of like, you know, Paul lived around the corner at the time and stuff. So I think we sort of hung out and maybe had a few drinks to sort of celebrate. It's finally out. But I'm pretty sure that even like, you know, Monday came out like the Saturday, I think we just played the Astoria or it was the night before or something. So again, it's kind of one of those things where you don't always get the chance to maybe necessarily sort of drink it in. Yeah. Because you're always doing something. And even that week there was probably promo or something going on. So you're happy, you're glad. And it's kind of one of those things where you go, all right, that's really cool. Like that one. That's great. And then you move on to the next thing uh, because you've got other stuff to do. But I can't remember, maybe Dan was the following weeks. It's normally the last weekend of May, isn't it? Yes, traditionally. So if that was the case at the time, then, you know, we'd be maybe having a day off, but going into rehearsal or something or getting ready to go to download. Or I'm pretty sure we did download and we were like at some festival in Spain at that weekend, maybe on the Friday. And then we left stupid early from Spain to get to download for the Saturday night, I think, you know, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm, so it's, mm-hmm. it's crazy. And also I do remember actually, because things came a little bit sort of full circle that time because we did sort of bump into Kitty again. Oh, okay. And, and Kitty were really sweet back in the day anyway. And I think, uh, I think the singer was called Morgan, I think. And she said, you know, next time we see you, you'll be above us. And we were kind of like, yeah, whatever, you know, you're just being really, really nice. And then she said, I told you when she saw me and I just thought, you know, that was really sweet. Really, you know, lovely. I think I bumped into the singer from Alterbridge as well. He was Miles, really nice. Miles Kennedy. Yeah, I think so. Oh, yeah. Wow. I, I love him. Well, I don't think he, they were doing much back then. Like, I think, because wasn't it old Creed where they all left Creed? That's right. And, and Scott then... Stapp was the only one left. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it's kind of like rather than us all be sacked, we just all left and joined another band. Yeah. But I think that they were courting or with Columbia because I think there was a lady there that worked at Columbia and she was sort of with him at Download or Ozfest or whatever and she mm. sort of introduced me and I chatted with him for five minutes and he was lovely so it's kind of another one of those kind of surreal moments wow God. but um yeah what's happened The great Blair McDonald returns to the show now to discuss the release of the debut from an industry perspective. Uh, was, I don't know, was it May 2002 before the album, the Ideas Above Our Station album came out? I, I should check Yeah, that. it was uh, May. Yeah, 20th mm-hmm. of May. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so by the time we came to put that first album out, we'd actually been working with the band for quite a long time and had worked quite a lot of music through the label to, to great effect, you know, and, and it really did help uh build the expectation and the excitement around that first album so uh yeah the the three eps before release funnily enough now that 
happens more often and and bands yes, uh, true, release yeah. a lot of singles and eps uh because i guess in the streaming age as soon as it's as soon as it's up it's 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 done it's old and and uh back back in the days before streaming you could at least hold the album back and 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 build a bit more demand and it was still fresh and new when it came out um so yeah jason was uh very much uh an integral part of the the team and the whole columbia uh marketing press and promotions team got behind it and uh did a fantastic job around the band yeah yeah colin mentioned colin mentioned someone called nathan leaks as well as being great yes um nathan was nathan was my talent scout at the time and uh so he joined in with a lot of the early gigs that we went to um and uh he had a great relationship with the band which obviously helped um helped you know build that bond between the label and the band so the record then i mean landmark album mm. Un- unbelievable right i mean just just like a, i mean we're slightly biased i'm doing a podcast you know you sign them but like <laughs> it, it is it is like a legitimately fantastic unbelievable 40 minutes or so of music there and you it guys is. must have been so happy i mean obviously you knew the potential of this band and you'd seen them live and the eps and stuff but it's it, it stands alone really as a testament to their talents i think so and as i say even from the point at which the band first delivered the first mixes of that first album, you know, it was the it, it was the kind of record that um, we would all come back to uh, within the label to to as a you know to to feel good about what we were doing as a as a music company, and that's saying something given some of the artists we were working on Columbia at the time. But hundred reasons was something that everyone could feel was uh, was new and was exciting, but was was also something really special that everyone at the label wanted to be involved with. Um, and when you know when the when those final mixes came in for ideas above our station, we all realised. I mean, I think we realised. You know, it's it, it's difficult with hindsight because you you, you see things perhaps slightly. Uh, favorably looking back on things, but I, I, I you know, the, the, there was never, there was never an issue with the records not right or the music's not right or the boys aren't in the right place. It, you know, it all worked. Uh, what I was going to say was, by the time the finished mixes of ideas of burst above our station were delivered, we already knew there was a great momentum behind this band. And we could see the shows that they were delivering were just getting crazier and crazier and, and, and the band were rising to that. Mm. Um, so it just, it felt right all the way along, all the way along that for that first two years of, uh, of, of the band working with Columbia, it felt uh, like everything was just clicking into place for, for, for the label and for the band. And, you know, it's back then you don't really know how that's going to be viewed in the future? How, how you know? Are mm. you going to achieve the success or the critical acclaim that you believe it's worth? Um, but I think it did. I think it did. And I, you know, I remember when uh, again back in the days of physical sales, when the the pre-orders were this and the HMV took this many copies, and the, you know the the conversations with the Sony sales team about 
what their feeling was and how well it was going to go. Um, and, you know, it was the days where you got a midweek chart position on a Tuesday morning, I think it was, because the album had released on a Monday. Um, and it was it was it, it was exciting because we knew we knew everyone, you know, there was a lot of support for the band and, and the, the, the press was good and the build up was good. I think they'd done Top of the Pops by that stage as well, which was a yeah, novel. Slightly later, yeah, just after the release of the record. Right, uh, right. Oh, no, no, you're right. Excuse me, sorry. It was the 17th of May. So it was just right. before the record dropped, yeah. I mean, look at that. Perfect. I mean, gosh, what a good label we were. We got <laughs> on Top of the Pops a few days before the album came out. Amazing. I mean, legit, um, one, of, legit one of the heaviest acts that's ever been on Top of the Pops. Like, <laughs> it's unbelievable. Um. So, so yeah, I, and I remember... Um, I remember, I think, getting a call from the head of sales saying the midweek was, I think it was, I was going to say two, but I think it was four. And then it slid back a couple of places as the week went on um, with with competition from other records. Because because the first few days, all the fans had gone out and, uh, and, and, got, and got the album. Um, so, so that was very rewarding. But again, it was it, it wasn't a bolt from the blue. We knew things were going well. We knew that we knew the boys were, were were doing everything that was asked of them, and um, we knew the music was was amazing. So, so yeah, you know, you look back, and it is. I think it's a. I think it's a a marquee album of of that period in time, and it, I think it still stands the test. Today, you know, I can go back and listen to that record and subsequent albums, yeah. uh, and and it's it stands the test of time. It stands up to um, to that test. Uh, I suppose the truth is, when you're there, when you're in amongst it, it's difficult to know how that's how that's going to reflect in ten, twenty, thirty years time. No, and uh, you know, undeniably, it stands the test of time. Just thinking of other bands' peers around at the time, so like Biffy and Muse and stuff like that. Like you know, mm-hmm. it's up there with them, and it was a huge success. It peaked at number six in the UK album charts with yeah. sales of 118k. Number seven in the Scottish album charts as well. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. just had to get that in there. Just a quick one from Larry here about how the band dealt with their newfound fame. Moving on a bit now, you're an established band after the debut. I mean, you must have had an ego, right? Not an unhealthy one, but like you're in a really successful rock band that people go crazy for. It must have been insane mentally. I yeah, I guess I don't. I don't. I'm not sure if we ever got that ego as a band, which might have no, been maybe even just privately, like girl. God, I'm actually a bloody guitarist in a popular band. Like that is wild. Like. <laughs> I don't think, I think most of the time we thought, oh, I can't believe we're getting away with this. Yeah, um, you, it was all downhill we since walking down- abortion, you know, so it's just like. Yeah, what kind of, you can kind of go either way with that, can't you? I think very, I, I don't think, I mean, maybe there are people at the time that think, oh my God, I'm the shit, this is fucking great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that wasn't, that wasn't me, and I don't think that was anyone else in the band. Maybe it's those people that go on to be Muse and ACDC, I mean, who knows. True. But, you know, that, that, that definitely wasn't what we thought. You know, I think we were always quite eager to please people we met. I thought we were probably a, a bit nervous and not really that comfortable in our own skin, probably quite uncomfortable with the position we were in, more than, like, wallowing in it. Um, so, you know, I think there was probably an awkwardness around us as being these dudes in their 20s that that 
that didn't expect to find themselves in this situation and were on the one hand enjoying it but were also quite terrified of it and didn't know what to do with it at the same time and we're trying to deal with that mm. so that's more what i remember i don't remember ever strutting around thinking i was the shit although possibly awkwardness and nerves might have caused us to act like this act like that from time to time <laughs> that definitely <laughs> wasn't what we were feeling so yeah i don't know i don't i don't remember ever feeling like that but you know I th- we I, th- I feel that we were almost like too self-defacing at times and we we sort of made self-deprecating into a bit of a joke that mm. we probably made too often um I see. and you know if i do have a regret it's that it that was the sort of culture amongst the band and not just going actually this is fucking great let's enjoy it <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah yeah it was almost like oh, Sorry, sorry, we're here. You know, it was always like a bit like that. It was like so English. It was painful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> The next section of the show focuses on some of the band's overseas exploits at the time, starting with Japan and then moving on to America. And here we begin with Colin talking about the team that helped them whilst they were in Japan. And um, the people that were sort of looking after us and stuff while we were there were just incredible. Um, there was Yoko and I think the other lady was called Hiromi. And they were from the label and they were just fantastic. And they just looked after us, made sure we had a great time. The shows were great fun. It was just brilliant. So for me, I know it could be a little bit sort of what you might call a well-ridden sort of mm. trope. But for me, it was just about, I, I'm getting the chance to go to Japan. I Never mind being in a rock band, I always wanted to go. Yeah. Um, and luckily, sort of music managed to take me there. And then when I was there, yes, I did go to the arcades. And yes, I did go into shops and stuff and buy games that you just cannot get over here. <laughs> um, yeah. some, of, some of which I still have. So for me, it was just brilliant because I just loved it. Um, yeah, and I always remember being in a restaurant really, really late at night and we'd all had a few drinks. I think it was Hiromi who said, yeah. And there was that time when we had this rock band at a restaurant and the owners just wanted them to leave, but they just wouldn't go. And then I was like, oh, that's us. <laughs> so <laughs> that was funny. And then we also met, I think her name was Midori and she was a photographer and she done like Metallica and stuff and she was hanging out mm. with us and I can't remember if it was herself or her daughter, but her daughter was just like the sweetest kid. She was probably about six or seven and she was with us as well. And it was just a really nice time to be around just lovely people in a really special place. So, um, yeah, it was, it was really, it was just brilliant. I loved it. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the game hunting over there, like a YouTuber that I'm a big fan of that maybe you're familiar with. He does a lot of retro gaming stuff. Metal Jesus Rocks. I'm well aware of Metal Jesus. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know Metal Jesus. Yeah, you know, you know Metal Jesus, Jason, I think <laughs> yeah. he's called, yeah. And he's done a few Japanese video game hunting videos and stuff like that. And they are just an absolute yeah. treat to watch. Because, yeah, it's a yeah. hidden gem, another hidden gem. A hidden gem, <laughs> that's it, yeah. And he does his stuff with uh, Radical Reggie and his pickups and stuff like that. Yeah, and, he does, uh, Radical Reggie does all the RPGs and stuff. That's right, yeah. I'm a big fan yeah. of Radical Reggie's channel as well. But yeah, I, I watch um, like Shmup Junkie and stuff at the moment and things like that. And, okay. Um, Electric Underground are really good yes. channels. They're into shmups and stuff, and I love shmups. Just enlighten the listeners for shmups. Shoot 'em up. So vertical scrolling shoot 'em ups. They don't have to be bullet hell, mm. but um, generally very good. And if you get the chance and you have a PlayStation 4 or PlayStation 5 or a Nintendo Switch, just check out anything made by M2 Shot Triggers. Getting back to 100 Reasons now, <laughs> um, another place I'm sure you desired to travel to was around this era as well. Your only American show as a band. 
in Austin, South by Southwest, with the darkness and British Sea Power. And actually, that's so weird because British Sea, I'm currently playing an RPG uh, called Disco Elysium, which I've just started playing. My friend, um, this Mikey Goodman from Sixth, does quite a lot of the audio direction on that. No. Um, yeah, so he he might do some of the voices in it as well. And oh also another friend of mine called Jess Walton, who's wonderful, really great guitar player, live sound engineer, tour manager, that kind of thing. I think during COVID, he ended up sort of working on that game as well. So I think mixing the audio. Unbelievable. And, and British Sea Power do the soundtrack as well. Ah, fair enough. So, so yeah, but yeah, oh, the, the, I mean, that's incredible that he did the audio. I mean, if he's any of the voices as well, it's some of the best dialogue. I think he did. Yeah, I think he got, I think he got nominated for an award. Rightfully so. I mean, yeah, yes. that, that game, that game is stupendous. <laughs> we, we keep getting pulled over to that side, but America, it's, uh, it's the golden land. How did this show come about? And why did you guys never go back out of interest? Well, I think we had an opportunity to go back, but I think there was sort of, I mean, I suppose with South by Southwest, you know, that's kind of where everybody goes. Mm. Um, and it was really funny because our manager at the time, he kind of said, you know, this is quite funny. We're watching a band called Hot Hot Heat in the Hot Hot Heat. <laughs> Um, I remember which that. Is, which is yeah. pretty good fun. Um, so that was quite funny. Um, <laughs> Did you watch The again, Darkness in The Darkness? No, we hung out with The Darkness a little bit just because we were there and stuff. But we, Idlewild were there at the time as well. So we took the time to sort of see those guys because they were playing. Lots of friends as to the, were, were around at the time. I, I, at the time, I used to know the guys from Dillinger Escape Plan, actually, like a little bit. Um, so I sort of bumped into, I think, Ben Myers from Dillinger and sort of hung out with him for a little bit. And you're just sort of hanging out with lots of different people um, as you're there. And it's just, and it's almost like the gig is kind of like almost incidental. Mm. It's something that you're doing just because you're there. But everything else, just hang out with friends and bands and meet people and just have a really cool time with cool people. Um, so that's generally my sort of real memories of South By. And I always remember that. Andy Buse and I had like a massive kind of all-you-can-eat breakfast buffet before we went out for the day. And then within like two hours, we were sat eating these huge, huge hamburgers with everybody else or something, <laughs> wondering how we were putting it away, but actually we were. Um, so now that was good. South Bar was great. And also as well, just got like, I always remember sort of stepping out of the airport, I think, um, and this wonderful lady who could only be described as kind of like a Dolly Parton-esque Hmm. Um, lady just said you know welcome to texas y'all and you're like do you know what that's that's a lo- that's a lovely thing you know what i mean when someone <laughs> come you somebody you've never met before she's just a passerby you know welcome hmm. to texas and you're like that's yeah that's what i'm i think it's one of the things i actually like about america when when it's done properly is they're kind of proud of where they're from and i like i quite like that quite like that someone says you know welcome and they they understand that what they're doing is themselves not everybody obviously but they're sort of representing you know the town that you're in you know almost yes um, but it's cool I liked it but that's not everybody obviously but that was a really nice thing to step into Texas and then some lovely lady just go yeah <laughs> and then obviously <laughs> driving or seeing a massive car that's just got bullhorns out the front like someone out of Dallas or Desperate Dan might be driving it or something <laughs> And what about the gig itself? Any memories of that? I think it's pretty rubbish. Right. I think, um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it was all right, but I remember not being able to hear anything. I'm, you know, I remember British Sea Power, you know, playing too long, I think, I think, or trashing the gear or something. They did something that was kind of a little bit, guys, we've got to play next. Yeah. Um, but I think everyone was a little bit young at that time. So, um, you know, no no beef there or anything. Mm. <laughs> There's nothing weird going on with British Sea Power. But um, 
no, it was cool. And I just remember sort of, again, I think the darkness of that on the night, it was almost like a British night. So just hanging out. I remember being very late, you know, and you're on about sort of midnight and you've got a bit of jet lag and stuff and you're tired from all the traveling and that kind of thing. But other than that, I just remember, I think not being too happy with the sound on stage, but getting on with it regardless. As I say, you, you didn't go back. You had the opportunity to go back. Like, was there any, I mean, trying to crack America again, I know it's a bit of a cliche or whatever. I know it's rarely done. But was there that push? Did you feel that behind the label? Was there a willingness on your part to do that? Or was that just not really in the stars? No, I think um, I think long term it was in the plan. But I think sort of certain staff members at the time, you know, the t- at the time we had um, the MD was a guy called Blair McDonald. He was amazing and uh, just one of the finest human beings ever. Um Still really good friends with them now. Um, I think I mentioned it as well. You know, literally just went out with him a few weeks ago yeah. to, to have a bit of dinner and stuff. And just a great, great human being. And I think his plans are sort of longer term, but I think the Sony plans for some of the, the, the staff at Sony were not as long term. So I think Blair ended up sort of leaving Sony and then somebody else sort of coming back in. Um, or sort of somebody coming and I can't remember that person's name offhand, but, you know, we weren't priority then. Um, so from that perspective, we did have, I think we got offered a tour around the US with Newfound Glory, um, who were big fans of the band and actually I think thanked us on their record, even though we never met them. So they were like really big fans of the band and they were like, bring out 100 reasons. And then I think at the time, Good Charlotte were kind of on their way up. So the bill would have been, and I think, and I could be wrong here, so anyone can correct me, but I think it was Newfound Glory, Good Charlotte, and then us potentially opening up. But the label sort of said no to that. And I think when that was declined, we were kind of a little bit, oh, okay, like that is it. Because <laughs> um, arguably those those shows at the time, I believe, were sort of 10,000 people a night. And that's that's a good support tour to be on. Yeah. So, yeah, I never really got to sort of tour extensively around the US, just really did South by and, and that was it. And finally, in this episode, we return to Blair, who reflects on the band's relationship or lack thereof with America. One of the things I wanted to ask you, I asked Colin this as well, and this isn't like that important in the grand scheme of things, but it's something, it's a trope, you know, you like to hit in these sort of stories. Um, mm. Ameri- America. There was one mm-hmm. American show that the band did at South by Southwest with the darkness of all bands mm-hmm. there. Another great mm-hmm. band from back in the day that's still going. You know, why was that? Why couldn't it happen for you guys, do you reckon? Oh, gosh. I, honestly, I wish I knew the answer to that. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the fact that they, that they had made the album with Dave Sardi in America, mm. um, there was uh, excitement from the label in America. Uh, but and again, twenty years ago, I can't. I, I don't recall if we, if we, if we had opportunities that we missed. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I could theorize about why uh, it didn't land more mm. in America. Um, I think. I think maybe at the time, and there is politics within big record labels like that there's there's you know there's you have to you have to take your shots and you have to find the right slot where where you can get enough support to to take a band out to america which is an expensive market to break and um and really put the time and effort and money into it i think at the time we talked about building other markets before 
really taking a shot at, at, at America. Um, and uh, the band obviously toured Europe quite significantly. They played shows in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, I'm, 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 it's, it's the, the, the mists of time, the fog of time is, is, uh, is difficult to pick through. But my guess is we got through all of that and the band toured heavily. And by the time we were looking for that slot to go to America and, uh, and have them perhaps on a big support tour for a long time, we had, we had gotten too deep into the campaign and, and it, was, it was more a conversation of let's, let's regroup, you know, let's, let's uh, play the Brixton Academy show, let's do the main stage at Reading and then regroup and, and make another record and come back and look at America the next time around. Uh, I may be wrong, but, I, I, but what, what, what I'm sure of is there was no one big reason why the band didn't connect in America or didn't perhaps even get enough of an opportunity in America. Yeah, uh, I think it was just perhaps timing and, uh, and I, I, I suppose maybe the sound of the record didn't quite have the space in America uh, at that time. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure uh, there was, you know, for, for a major label to work uh, a rock record, it had to fit into the, the kind of rock format of radio in America. And I'm not sure the album was the sound of what was really working at rock radio in America yeah. to the extent that I was getting calls from Columbia and the US saying, oh my God, you've got to bring these boys over because we can get this, you know, we can get this away at, at uh, US radio. Um, but yeah, I think it's a, it's it's probably a million different reasons and no one significant reason why America didn't really come on board. All right, and there we go. That's episode two of Live Fast, Die Ugly, The 100 Reasons Podcast. We will be back in a fortnight for a jam-packed episode looking at the story of both the band's second album, Shatterproof Is Not A Challenge, and their third, Kill Your Own, along with an extended chat of a new voice on the podcast, the band's agent, Rad. That was a great talk with him, and you guys are going to love that. And if you've enjoyed the podcast and maybe want to hear more of my own work, including other bands that I've spoken to and shows of my own, like deep dives into Metallica and the classic BBC comedy The Royal Family, well, check out TomQuee.com. That's my name. That's Tom, K-W-E-I, I before E accepting Quee. That's TomQuee.com, and the links are down below. And of course, above all, support the band themselves. Go to 100reasons.com, follow them on all their platforms, pre-order the album twice if you need to, get tickets for the upcoming shows, and actually... Just as I've recorded this, they've announced they're going to be playing 2,000 Trees as well. So get tickets for that as well. As always, this has been Tom. Until next time, 